Welcome to the Awakened Man Podcast, where we promulgate that your physical, psychological, and financial health are your true sources of wealth that must be safeguarded and optimized to achieve long-lasting happiness. Here, we'll discuss tactics on how you may self-actualize to reach the pinnacle of authentic masculinity by embracing true libertarian principles, arming yourself with red pill knowledge, as well as implementing the most up-to-date holistic health biohacks to optimize your health. Stop being a blue pill sheep, being led to slaughter by big government and the court system. Become an awakened man. Here's your host, Gregory. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Awakened Man Podcast, a repository for holistic health, red pill masculinity, and ultimate freedom. Today, we have a special episode. I'll be interviewing a gentleman by the name of Will. And Will is an alcoholic, and he's decided and agreed to come on board in this episode to talk about what it's like to be an alcoholic, how it affects his life, how it affects his health, and to flesh out what it is to be an alcoholic. Now, I know some of you understand alcoholism because perhaps you have family members in your life that are or were an alcoholic. Uh, so you can relate to perhaps what Will's talking about. But I, I think this is a good, a good episode because we talk about how men should try to optimize their life. Right? You, you can eat Hot Pockets and play video games all day, but that's not really optimization. And we mentioned that a few episodes back how to really optimize your, your, your life, you have to purge your demons, purge your addictions, work on your health, focus on any early childhood trauma you had and get rid of all that and cast it aside so you can really reach your full potential. And I think in the men's world and certainly in the women's world as well, though it's different types of addictions, there are a lot of people who are bedeviled and beleaguered by addiction. And so I think Will coming on uh, it, it is a great testimony to to working on your addictions because he's agreed to talk about it. So Will, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Gregory. How are hey. you? Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, just talk as long as you can. All right, so let's just start. Okay. How, how many years have you been an alcoholic? Um, well, you know, I had my first drink when I was um, 12. And when I had that first sip of alcohol, which I think it was gin, <laughs> I loved the taste of it. I'm not going to lie. Um, and I drank off and on whenever I could from that age, you know, whenever I could get alcohol from friends um, up until I could get it myself legally at the age of 21 uh, so you know i would say i when when I, when I hit 21 that's when i just started drinking every day because i could buy alcohol myself and and i would uh, so since 21 but i mean i guess you could say since since 12 really you know and how old are you now so i'm i'm 51 okay so you've been drinking at least daily for 30 years straight that's correct Okay, so describe a, a, a typical day. Now, there's, there's different types of alcoholics. I was telling Will, and I've really talked about this over at my Confessions of an Obese Child podcast. My father was an inveterate alcoholic, but he was a high-functioning alcoholic where he was a doctor. He would do autopsies and be perfectly fine. I mean, he was that adjusted to the alcohol, but we in the family knew he was an alcoholic because he would always smell like it or he smelled like mouthwash because he would always have mouthwash in the car and he would have like four secret hiding places of his alcohol in the car. 
and he'd have hiding stashes in the house. And of course he would come home and, and rage at us on some days when he was drunk and then be nice on other days. But we knew he was an alcoholic, but he was very functional, not to the point where he ever was even worried about losing his, his high functioning job. And then you have other types of alcoholics that are staggering drunk all the time on the streets. So where would you put yourself on that spectrum? I was, let me just correct one thing really quick. Um, I drink every day um, up until around the age of 45 um, when I had a doctor's appointment and she said, boy, you really need to quit because, you know, your liver levels um, are coming back really bad. And so I think I quit for about two weeks, uh, got through some really bad tremors and stuff and then I felt great and I thought well you know I'm gonna start drinking again so since about the age of uh 45 46 I binge drink now so okay. I don't drink I don't drink every day but what I'll do is I'll drink five days straight hard okay. hit, hit it hard yeah and then take off like four days like a bender but, yeah yeah I, I do these benders now but uh, I would say I was like your dad I mean because I had a job from you know, from the age of uh, 19 till the age of, um, let's see, I, I actually left this job about four years ago. And, you know, during that time, I drank every day. I would drink at work. You know, I would just pour my alcohol into a, uh, uh, um, you know, I'd go, I'd go buy a big gulp of Coke and pour the alcohol in there. And I, I'd go in and, and just, uh, I would function, you know. Did anyone suspect during this time that you were an alcoholic or that you were drinking on the job? Did anyone, any supervisors or colleagues come to you or, or just anybody and say, hey, I think we think you're drunk. You might want to stop. No, nobody ever did because I, I function really well. But it's kind of funny that I, I thought nobody suspected, you know, and I worked in this job where I had to deal with like, we'll just say like uh, the public kind of, you know, Uh Um, I would see a lot. Well, you know, it's it's an educational situation. So they were students. And so I would, you know, work with these students all the time as a a teacher's assistant. And, you know, I'd go in and do my thing and work and have a good time with all these students. And I happened to see one of these students a year later. um, And, I was running out of, uh, of Walgreens. Of course, I was buying a bottle of alcohol, and and she said, "Oh, hey, Will, did you buy get your bottle of alcohol?" And she just yelled this across the the parking lot. I said, "Well, what are you talking about?" And she says, "Oh, come on, Will. Everybody knew that you were just always drinking all the time." And so I was like, I was kind of floored by that because I was like thinking like, well, I guess everybody must have smelled it on my breath, I suppose, but nobody ever um, said anything. To and me. nobody called you on it. You know, uh, it, like with different types of addictions, uh, you know, people can kind of tell like, you know, they'll say like the bulimics, you can see the scarring on the fingers or the bad breath. And you know, with alcoholics, lots of times they have that very ruddy complexion, that kind of red face, the bloated Matthew Perry face from Friends that kind of look. So maybe they saw that or maybe, you know, as you mentioned, you smelled like alcohol. And lots of times addicts can recognize other addicts. And who knows? I mean, maybe some people were just really discerning uh, these, these students of yours. Some of them were really discerning and others probably had, had no clue. Yeah, that's pro- I, that's, I think that's probably true. 
All right. So around 45, you stopped the, the daily drinking and then you, you started doing uh, benders for the last, you know, four, you said you're 50, correct? Yeah, 51. Okay. So the last five years you've been doing benders. So have you been working the last five years? Um, no, I haven't. Um, so how do you pay the bills? Well, I'm retired from this, this job I had. I happened to be lucky to put in my 25 years, and that was one of the rules they had as far as retirement, and, and I just left, and so I'm, I'm getting a pension now. So I'm really not doing much of anything. So, um, so I'm able to pay for alcohol, you know, and, and um, do these vendors. So... Because you're, you're a young man, 50, you know, in the olden days, you know, when our grandfathers are 50 was old, but you still got another average life expectancy, you know, 76 for a guy. Uh, have you ever thought about doing some sort of part-time job or do you feel like the, the alcohol is so incapacitated you now that you're doing these benders that you don't, you either don't have the, the motivation or you feel like you couldn't hold down a job? No, I, I've been, I, I've, been wanting to get another job like at least a part-time job mm -hmm. um unfortunately uh my mom's been pretty ill um which has been one reason maybe it's just an excuse you know for not going out and getting a job um you know the, the pension i'm getting it's not great it's just enough to pay the bills that's one reason i would like to go out and get another job mm -hmm. and um I, I think i was just about ready to go out and get one until this whole, you know, this whole scenario that we're in happened. And so, yes. but that's, well, again, that's just an excuse because I could go out and get a job. I, I, I think I'm just being kind of lazy, really. Well, I mean, that that's good at, that you admit that that's possible rationalization right there. I mean, this is one of the issues with the welfare state in general. And you've seen recently with during COVID that, that people who are furloughed or laid off are getting $600 a week. Uh, from unemployment from the government and that's almost more than what they were making if not more than when they were working so a lot of them are like why am i going to go back to work if i can keep getting this unemployment so uh, welfare as a whole disincentivizes work and even though you might not be getting welfare per se a pension is a sort of like passive income right so if we have this income coming in it certainly is going to de-incentivize de work as opposed to oh my god if i don't pay if i don't get a job i'm going to be kicked out of my apartment and on the streets so explain, explain to us what's a bender like. Uh, don't, don't, not necessarily like what causes it, because we're going to breach that after we, you, you kind of describe what's a bender. But explain to people who have no idea what a five, six-day bender is like, what it's like, or maybe give movie examples if you know of any movies that have kind of explained it pretty well. Okay. Um, well, Gregory, just so you know, and your listeners know, I really want to quit drinking because... Uh -huh. The older I've been getting, uh, it's just it's it's really tough on me psychologically and yeah. physically, you know. Because yeah. when I do say the five day bender and I finish it and I say, well, I'm never gonna drink again. Oh man, I go through four or five days of hell, and I think, man, I'm never gonna do this again. But but it you happens do. again, and so <laughs> the way the way. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, so the way the next. The way a typical bender for me starts is I'll say, well, you know, I mean, I want to quit. Um, and I love, you know, the hard stuff. And I think to myself, well, you know, drinking a few beers isn't going to hurt. You know, so usually it starts with, um, you know, going to a friend's house, 
having a few beers. Um, and, you know, I, I, maybe I'll do that one day and the next day I'll do that again. I'm thinking, oh, this is going great. I can just drink beer. And the third day, each day I'm drinking more beer. And, um, and then I might end up at a, a friend's house who, say, is doing shots of vodka. And I think to myself, well, Will, you know, one shot of vodka is not, you know, you can handle that. I mean, right. you can just stop at one shot. Um, but, you know, it all it takes is that first drink of vodka. And, uh, yeah, I can't stop the one shot of vodka because I, I love the taste of vodka. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll stay at that friend's house and, you know, do 10 shots. And uh, I'll be, you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty lit, leave his place. And the first place I head to is the local liquor store to buy a fifth of vodka. Because uh, I'm like, you know, hey, screw it. I'm just going to drink this entire bottle of vodka. And, I'll, you know, I'll do it maybe that night or during the next day. And, uh, I'll, and I'll tell you, these la this last year, uh, once I, I start hitting that bottle of that fifth of vodka, I'll, I'll start blacking out from that moment. Like, I'll, I'll forget the five days almost. It's kind of like uh, I was trying to feel like Nicolas Cage and uh, leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, I'll, that, I'll remember things like I'll remember I'll start hitting the bottle and I'm thinking like, wow, I want to go driving. And, and I'm kind of like Nicolas Cage driving around in my car. It, I don't know if you remember the scene where he's sitting there hitting the bottle and then takes a chaser of beer and then a cop pulls up next to him and he just kind of hides it. Yeah, that's me. And I, and I can drive, you know, I think I drive around perfectly fine on a fifth of vodka, you know. Um, I've never been in an accident, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm totally plastered. But I'll, during that five-day bender, I'll remember episodes, like little episodes. But, you know, these days I literally almost black out those entire five days. All right, so so a couple, and then you eventually stop because you're you're feeling sick, or you realize that this is pernicious to your health. Well, it's like during that five day period, it's like a real, high, it's like a rush for me. You know, it's a real high. And then what happens is, like on that, say the sixth morning, um, like my body just finally is worn down, and I'll wake up in bed. And by the way, I wake up in bed thinking to myself. Uh, wow, how the hell did I get here? Or maybe I'll be on the couch and thinking like, what the, what the hell? I mean, you know, what what was I doing for the last five days? Do you know what I mean? So you have like missing time, like you've been abducted by aliens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, so I wake up that sixth morning thinking like, wow, Will, that was, okay, that was something. Now you feel like shit because my body feels it. Right. And I think to myself, that's when I start the, well, Will, you're never going to do this again. So let's, uh, then I know that I'm going to be going through like uh, three or four or five days of withdrawals. Um, and it's hell. And, and I say, never again. But I do it again. <laughs> All right. So a couple of things. A couple of things. I appreciate your honesty describing that. So you drive drunk. I mean, you're unequivocally you drive drunk all the time when you're on these benders yeah okay yeah, now, I, you you say 
that you you drive pretty well, you know, drinking a certain amount of alcohol and you've never been in an accident. But clearly, if you were pulled over, you would be over the limit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you understand how you're putting other people in your own life at risk by driving drunk for these, you know, 25 years? You know, I mean, I rationalize it. You know, I mean, I know that, you know, don't drink and drive because, yeah, you, you know, I watch the commercials. Oh, man, you you know, here's some drunk guy. And like me, you know, those commercials were some guy saying, oh, I can drive, you know, I know how to drive when I'm drunk. Um, So, I mean, I know it's not a good thing because, uh, as we know, the statistics of, you know, drunk drivers killing people on the road is really high. Uh, but, you know, I, I rationalize, I'm, I'm like the guy in the commercial who just says to himself, no, you're the one drunk dude who really knows how to drive under the influence and I'm not putting anybody's life at jeopardy. Yeah, I think, you know, I I know that's not true. Exactly. I I think part of being an addict of any type, whether it be sex or shopping or gambling or food, you know, there's a massive amount of rationalization mixed in with self-loathing. Now, if you were to take somebody's life, do you think you would stop the the, the benders? You think you would continue? I mean, honestly. I mean, in all honesty, that that would probably be more of a reason to just say, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to just probably just hit it even more you know what i mean i mean if i actually killed somebody i'd be like well you know i did the worst i possibly could now i can now i'll just go on with my life and just just drink every day well you you you'd probably end up in jail where they wouldn't allow you to drink and then you'd have the best of all rehabs (laughs) the best or slash worst of all rehabs so let's let's go back to the beginning of the bender so the bender starts when you go to somebody's place and uh they're drinking so i mean Logic would dictate, hey, you know, if you're thinking in your own mind, Will, you are an inveterate alcoholic with 25 years of drinking, if not more. Maybe it would behoove me not to go to a person's house who's drinking. Does that ever enter your mind? Or you think you just have so much self-loathing that you want to do it because you love the addiction more than you love yourself? Um, Well, number one, you know, I agree with you as far as you know, because, you, I mean, you, we have, we've all heard that if you're an alcoholic or, you know, a drug addict or whatever, you shouldn't hang around people that are doing that if you're trying to clean up yourself. Yeah. Um, and it's not so much self-loathing, but, but it, you know, it's like, oh, you know, again, it's rationale. Well, you got self-restraint, Will. Um, you, you can hang around this person because you've known this person for, you know, 10 years. He's your friend. You can't just not unfriend them just because they drink you know but you so, could uh, you could because well, if, I mean, yeah i could because you yeah. are rationalizing but i mean part of you knows hey will i've been an alcoholic for 25 years hey will i've known these friends forever they drink i know deep down that if i go to their house 98 percent of the time i'm going to start drinking which can cascade into a multi-day bender which could theoretically end up i could take somebody's life really what I should do is stay away from these people and find new friends who are not alcoholics or don't have addictive personality. I mean, you're absolutely right. But, you know, um, I, once again, rationalized to myself saying like, well, Will, you're the one person who, who um, can go visit this person and show the self-restraint, even though you are an alcoholic, you'll be able to sit there and not drink. You know, I, I, you know, I just rationalized myself. Yeah, I get that. I get that if this is your second bender, but if this is your 58th bender, 
you can't really honestly rationalize that anymore because you know you always go to these these dudes houses and you drink so i mean how can you intellectually rationalize oh i have i have the self-restraint not to drink when you know past history suggests that you will always drink when you go to these guys' house i mean you're absolutely right but um you know once again it's like one there's that little part of my brain that's trying to be like oh will you can do it but you're right really uh you know, most of my brain, which probably isn't functioning the way it should be anymore, because, you know, um, that alcohol's taking a toll, I can tell, just on my mental capacity, you know, I, I don't think the way I used to, Yeah. Um, so maybe that's also part of it, I, I, I'm just not thinking anymore as a, a rational person, even though I think I am, you know what I mean? Would you say that you like your addiction? Not anymore, um, because I, I loved it up until about a year ago, uh-huh. but I can feel now the physical toll. I mean, um, I mean it, it's taken a toll on my body, and um, when I w- wake up on those six mornings and, and, and I go through those five days of, of hell, yeah. um, it's like I, I go like, I can't do this anymore. So, so I mean, I do want to quit. But so so I don't I, I don't enjoy it like I, I mean I mean I can't no that's not true I mean I, I still love alcohol I mean that's right. something but you know there's still part of my brain that says well will you know this is not good for you you know I mean mentally and physically so um, um, and that's the way I've been thinking I would say for about the last year so I do really, really want to quit because I would like to live to at least 80, you know, if I, if I possibly could. Um. Well, I mean, you see with a lot of addicts, there's, there's a lot of self-loathing. Uh, let's look at just like eating addictions. You know, you see people who, who it's like, oh, you know, I just need that one bite, one bite, one bite. You know, the dopamine hit that everybody gets when they're an addict and then they, they binge eat and then they feel like crap. And then because, oh, I'm such a failure, I'm such a moron, I'm such a loser, like what I just did, that just fuels the self-loathing, which then sets up for the next binge. So I think beneath your drinking, I mean, there, there has to be a certain level of self-loathing because you know what you're doing is deleterious to your health. I mean, this, the studies will show alcohol is one of the top three carcinogens, cancer causers, along with like obesity and smoking. And we know it cuts life expectancy for anywhere from seven to nine years, uh, not just for cirrhosis, but for all, all body problems. You're looking at heart disease and so forth. So you know this intellectually, but something still fuels you to drink. And some of that's got to be self-loathing because, I mean, what else can it be aside from I like the way it tastes? Because you, you say I like the way it tastes, but then you feel like crap after the bender right? Which makes sense. But then you keep doing it. So what's, what's causing you to do it aside from maybe the dopamine high? Is there, there's got to be self-loathing there. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's could be, and then it's funny, you should mention the, uh, the, the cancer thing, because I, I found out uh, just a few months ago, I do have cancer. I'm sorry to hear um, that. What kind um, do you have? It, it's prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which at the age of 
51 is kind of unusual. Um, so, you know, there's also a part of me that thinks, well, uh, fuck it, I got cancer. Yeah. Uh, more of a reason to maybe go on a bender this time. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, well, that's, um, the self, that's the self-loathing. I mean, just like what you said, if you did take somebody's life in a car accident, oh, screw it. You know, it's just like, I'm a horrible piece of crap. I just killed some 12-year-old. Now it's even more reason for me to booze it up. It's kind of the same thing with the cancer diagnosis. So like yeah. part of you knows, oh, damn, I need to stop cold turkey for this cancer for me to knock it, you know, especially if I do radiation or whatever you're going to do surgery. I need to cut, stop cold turkey, but then part of you, that addictive personality part of you is like, well, screw it now. I'm going to drink even more because you know, I got cancer and I'm scared. And it's going to cause anxiety and I don't know what the future holds for me. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, uh, and then you know, what's even crazier is I recently lost a friend. And by the way, this is one of the friends that I would end up at where, you know, he drank hard alcohol. Mm -hmm. And notice I just used the past tense because he just passed away. Um, and I'm going to try not to cry, but he passed away just uh, like three weeks ago. And guess what took him out? Alcohol. His drinking. Yeah. yeah. He was, uh, I would go visit this guy and he, um, starting about like uh, six weeks ago, he was yellow from the top of his head to the, you know, to the tip of his toes. I mean, he had gone jaundiced. Yeah. And when I opened the door one day, when, well, he opened the door to, when I was visiting, and I was just like, dude, my God, uh, you look like shit. I mean, you, you know, you need to go to the hospital, dude. And, um, and you know, and here I am thinking, my God, this guy is jaundiced because of all his heavy drinking. Um, and he hit it hard, right, when the, this whole coronavirus thing started. He was drinking non, literally nonstop. Every waking moment, he was just drinking. And by the way, he was only 42. Yeah. And uh, so he goes and, you know, finally his mom and sister had uh, APD. Uh, well, you know, the police um, come and break down his door, and they ended up taking him to the hospital. And, and uh I, I only talked to him a couple of times in the last like month, but anyway, he said he was it was that it was it, and sure enough, it was he he died, and so this this last bender, you know, I, you know, before it started, or, you know, or when he died, I thought to myself, Will, don't drink anymore. I mean, you know, because I mean that could be me, right? Right. But, but the stupid thing is, when he was jaundiced, and I was standing there thinking, like, my God. He's jaundiced because of his heavy drinking, and, and he, he needs to go to the hospital, which I, 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 on a few occasions I tried to urge him to do. Um, but guess what I ended up doing instead? Drinking. Sitting there and doing shots with him. Yeah. Yeah. Basically helping him kill himself, you know? Well, you know, I mean, a lot of it is soothing the pain. You have pain, and we're going we're gonna to go to your childhood and so forth, but a lot of it is just your choice to soothe the pain is – drinking where i talk about on my podcast it used to be binge eating i had a rageaholic father and a kind of aloof a neglectful mother and as a young child food comforted me because they didn't give me the nurturance that i needed 
And I think, you know, with you, it's, it's alcohol with other people, it's, it's other vices. And it's certainly understandable that there's this cognitive dissonance that you have. You just see your friend who's dying and then eventually dies from the exact same thing that you're doing. But what's your coping mechanism? What's your go-to? It's always alcohol. So it makes complete sense that even though intellectually, you know, this is the worst thing you can do, especially now that you have a cancer diagnosis, you, you go to it, right? So it, it's, it's completely understandable. It doesn't take away culpability, but it's completely understandable why you do it. Well, I mean, I, I guess thanks for saying that. <laughs> So let's let's talk about uh well let's talk about your friends. So what stops you from just purging every friend that you have that's in that's in these vices and surrounding yourself with none of these types of friends until you can find better friends? Because these friends aren't your friends, you know, because you're all enabling each other. Um yeah, I don't I don't know how to answer that, uh, Gregory, because um I mean, quite frankly, I mean I I, I I don't know what it is about me, but I, I seem to always attract, um, as far as friends, yeah. people who do have all sorts of problems, you yeah. know, whether yeah. it's uh, drug addiction, you know, like, you know, heroin, you know, I've never got into that and I hope I never do, but uh, alcoholism or, I don't know, I just, these are the people that flock to me and then they befriend me and you know I, I don't really I've, I, I don't think I've ever really had like quote unquote a normal uh, friend you know it's understandable dysfunction kind of uh, attracts dysfunction and uh, like you said you're, you're not just around alcoholics you can be around drug addicts too or codependent people there's codependent yeah. people that like to be around addicts because they get their whole raison d'etre their whole existence comes from helping them supporting them trying to get them off the wagon and so you see this like in marriages where let's say the wife's the codependent one on the man's drinking problem and then once he stops drinking she gets angry or she gets sad or depressed because her whole life has been trying to save him and now she doesn't know what to do what about a uh, personality change Do you feel your personality changes when you're on one of these benders Oh yeah, for sure. Because by nature, I'm a, I'm I'm an introvert. I mean, um, I mean, I was, you know, I hate to use the kind of cliche, painfully shy. But I, you know, I was painfully shy growing up. Um, and, you know, and I was very shy up until I would say the age of um, thirty-five, maybe. Where, where around that age where I started feeling comfortable with the kind of person who I am, but up until that point, I, I had a lot of issues um, that I was dealing with that, you know, that didn't involve alcohol. Um, but, but, well, you know, other than maybe I was using alcohol as a, you know, as an escape from those issues. Um, but, you know, alcohol... And maybe I'm wrong because maybe it was just my own personal perception, but other people would probably say, no, Will, you're totally wrong. But to me, you know, and, and during these binges, I, I become more open and I'm a, an extrovert and I feel like I'm a, 
more fun person to be around. And, uh, and I say that, you know, having had a few people that I've, I've been around during these binges who say like, no, Will, you're actually kind of, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not no, sorry, dude, kind of early in the morning, but you're actually pretty obnoxious yeah. in these binges and you're uh, actually not a particularly fun person to be around, you know? No, it's good that you kind of have that that foresight to see that because lots of times when we're we're under that addiction, we think we're projecting something that is emboldened or, or or an improvement on who we think we really are. But then the other people are like, no, you know, you're either like a, a rager, like my dad would be a, a rager, like a screamer, right? So everybody who's drunk is is different, right? Some become more funny, some become introverted, some become very petty and passive aggressive, some become angry. So I think it's good that you can you can step back and and you know your friends tell you actually no well you know you become so, kind of an arse uh, when you're drinking. Yeah. So what about rehab? Have you done it? Have you thought about it? Because you say you want to stop. Yeah, you know uh, my doctor um, just about. Uh, I'd say six months ago, you know, I, I, I told her I really want to stop. So she prescribed me um, this medication that she said, well, this will help curb your desire for alcohol. Yeah. And it was all, okay, great. And then she also said, and I'm going to refer you to this um, uh, psychological, you know, this counseling place so they can maybe, you know, set you on the path of rehab and all that stuff and um and i got about three calls from that place and you know i, I just let it go to voicemail and i listened to each time i listened to it and it was that place and well hey you know we're here to help you and and i just uh would think in my mind well maybe i should do it but then uh you know instead i just decided to go on another bin so you know so I think I think it's good that you can step back because you, you say you want to stop, but then any avenues that are given to you to stop. And look, I mean, is it, is there a high recidivism rate after rehab? Yeah, sure. A lot of people go fall back off the wagon after rehab, but there are people who do go cold turkey after rehab. So, I mean, aside from maybe money being an issue, I don't know if you have family that could pay for rehab, but I mean, I, I don't think you can intellectually deny that doing a 28-day stint in some rehab place would be good for you. Yeah, I'm not going to deny that. Or or even at least just taking the advice of my doctor and just going to talk to the counselor. And, you know, of course, she also said, you know, an AA is also an option. Yeah. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I guess the reason I don't want to go see that counselor or go to AA is because I just don't want to talk about my problems in front of complete strangers, you know? Oh, but I would tell you, look, I used to go to Overeaters Anonymous back 20, 25 years ago. And, and, and I used to go to uh, Al-Anon, which is the support group for family members that are alcoholics and uh, for my father. And uh, it's, it's, it's beneficial. Look, you're talking to a bunch of people who don't know you. So you say that you don't like that. But when you go to these functions, uh, there's something very cathartic about talking about your problems. It's like, almost like talking to a priest, right? There's anonymity. And I think that you would definitely benefit from it. And 
as I mentioned, it wouldn't hurt because I mean, you, you say on one level, I want to stop, I want to stop, but you haven't really done anything to stop. And I, I, I don't think you would deny that, right? You haven't gone to rehab, you haven't gone to AA. That's correct. So, I mean, it's just, uh, I guess if I just overcame whatever fear it is of why I don't want to talk to anybody about what my issues are, about what the really root cause of my drinking is, if I was just able to just overcome that fear and just maybe go to an AA meeting or go see that counselor, um, I mean, yeah, maybe that would be like this, this amazing new journey and why, you know, I mean, maybe after this interview, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe hopefully I'll do that. Well, let's talk about your childhood because uh, over at Confessions of an Obese Child, we talk about how you have to do the deep work and, and kind of confront early childhood trauma to really get at the, uh, the core of why you have an addiction. And unless you look at that, it's almost impossible to end an addiction because many times you'll just transfer it to another one, right? So let's say you're a drinker and then you stop drinking, but then you, you start smoking you know, three packs a day or you start shopping too much or gambling or whatever it is. So you mentioned that you started drinking when you were 12 and that you liked drinking and that you just started drinking every day. Now, a lot of people, when they drink, they just don't start drinking every day. So something must have happened in your childhood that made you be like, oh, wow, this alcohol, quote, it tastes good. And look, to be honest, I would say most people wouldn't drink alcohol for the taste. But why, why do you think you turned to alcohol at such a young age? Okay, well, if we're going to go all the way back to childhood, you know, as a very young child, you know, as far back as I can remember, which is maybe four, you know, my family life was actually not so bad you know i had a pretty but my family was pretty close mm -hmm. um and we all got along pretty well we had like you know your typical kind of norman rockwell kind of thanksgiving and christmas thing and and we were all honky dory um but one thing that wasn't good about that uh childhood was i had a very physically abusive mother i mean she was kind of like the she was like a, your typical mommy dearest as far as like you know she would grab the closest thing and just start beating me with it you know yeah. um, a hairbrush or you know a shoe you know and here i am just like four or five years old thinking like oh what the what the hell did i do to deserve this you know Sure. And so, I mean, it's kind of weird because she would be, you know, we'd have days where, you know, days on end where it was like great. And then out of the blue, she would snap and then just start beating me or my sisters. Um, now, was she, was she under the influence of anything? Was she an alcoholic? No, she, she was not. Just a rager. Just a, just a rager. You know, I yeah. sometimes think, well, maybe, maybe it was some hormonal thing that maybe she needed to go see a doctor so she could take some sort of medication herself but uh i don't know she would just she would be like really a wonderful mom for five days and then she would just snap yeah. and then just be uh joan crawford you know she'd be joan crawford for the next five days and then just beat the shit out of us for no reason uh, what, what was your father doing there during this time was it was well he, my dad was 
my dad was uh, in, in construction, so he would always go where the work was. So he often was out of town. Um, yeah. But, but he when knew. he was in town and when uh, she was in her rage, oh, I mean, he would often take the brunt of it. I mean, he would, she, she would uh, yeah. keep him up all night long and just yeah. uh, yelling at him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know. She yeah. would she would go nuts during those five days. Here. She probably she probably had a cluster B personality disorder. She was either borderline or maybe maybe uh, probably borderline. It sounds like or maybe bipolar. Was she ever yeah, diagnosed yeah. anything later on? Uh, um, okay, you know it's funny. We, we were talking to the psychiatrist, and it had nothing to do with her. It had to do with my brother, and I'll get to that later. But this, if we kind of jump ahead a few years in the future, this psychiatrist said, you know, Miss, uh, my mother, he says, you know, you need to, um, you need to be diagnosed because there's something definitely wrong with you. And of course, she, she just flew off the handle at this doctor, but she never got diagnosed. Yeah. You know, I always wish she had gone to a, a, you know, a medical doctor or psychiatrist or something to get diagnosed with whatever issue she had, but she never did. This is this is pretty common in in the female world. This this kind of unchecked uh, rage, fuel rage that that you see, and and, and uh, you know, I mean, this isn't really the time and the place to talk about it, but uh, it's it's not that uncommon. And I think a lot of these women, because see, men are kind of raised to, to that we have to control two things: we have to control our sexuality. And we have to control our, our physical aggression, right? So we can't be a kid and just beat the crap out of everybody. And we can't be, you know, screwing girls all day in high school. But women are never taught at a young age that they have to control their emotions and their reactiveness. And so women feel like they can just go carte blanche lots of times and just rage and yell and scream uh, because they were really never taught to have to control that. And some guys get off on it. And then there are a lot of guys are just henpecked like husbands who just, they don't know how to handle it, so they just check out or they just leave, and uh, it's 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 horrible dysfunction. It's horrible dysfunction. So I'm I'm sorry to hear that. So you think that's what it was? You just had the rageaholic mom, and then you took those yeah, steps at twelve. Uh, yeah, and I had a lot a lot of resentment towards her, you know, growing up as a kid. So so it's kind of weird, you know. There was we were kind of a Norman Rockwell family in a sense for for up until the age of when I was. 10, which is a, like another key turning point, which I'll tell you about. But, you know, I, I mean, even though I had a nice kind of childhood up until the age of 10, I had a lot of, of, of hate for my mom. Sure. You know? Yeah. And um, so I'll just go ahead and jump to when I, I, when I turned around 10. The next big thing that happened is um, my brother, um, I have three brothers and two sisters, and um, the oldest brother was great. Second brother was kind of, uh, um, he just ignored the entire family. Then my third brother, those are the three oldest in my family. The third brother, he uh, decided to become a schizophrenic. Mm. So, so he got diagnosed as a schizophrenic. And, you know, he was kind of the wild one of those three oldest brothers. He did lots of drugs, by the way. Um, So that, of course, totally changed how the the whole family dynamic because, I mean, he he just changed, right? I mean, he was suddenly this crazy guy. 
Was he seeing things and hearing voices? Yeah, yeah, he was like, uh, like you're the one you kind of really imagine, like in like in movies, kind of like um, Robin Williams and uh, what was that movie um, with um, uh, Jeff Bridges? Um, oh, the Fisher King. Yeah, the Fisher King. You know, which is kind of funny because you know there's Jeff Bridges, a total alcoholic, and then. Uh, Robin Williams, of course, you know, for different reasons goes crazy, but my brother, yeah, he would see, see visions and hear voices, and usually they were from Satan, um, yeah. telling him to do things, and um, he would often think he was Jesus Christ, and uh, he would just disappear for days, and then my parents would get a phone call from Washington, D.C., uh, saying that the Washington DC cop that picked him up because he was over there wandering the streets saying he was Jesus Christ and that he was going to go kill the president or something like that. That's horrible. So, so that, so a big thing happened, of course, you know, him going crazy, but then my mom also kind of changed because um, she had always been kind of a, 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 a woman who liked to socialize, you know? But when my brother went crazy, I think what happened to her is she became kind of ashamed of that fact. And she totally cut off all ties with her family, who she was pretty close with, and just shut everybody out. And, uh, you know, that was a big change because, you know, we used to go visit a lot of her family, or, you know, like my uncles and aunts. But all of a sudden, when my you know, brother started going off the deep end. She, we stopped doing that, and she became kind of a recluse. And um, so the next, you know, for the next few years growing up, it was just a lot of uh, hanging out, hanging around the house. And when my brother was around, when he wasn't off, you know, trying to, uh, you know, kill the president or whatever, yeah. um, he would be in and out of the mental hospital and. and in our state and uh, you know my mom would drag me with her to go visit him and when he was in the hospitals and the, you know, the hospitals would typically just take him in for a few days put him on dopamine which would just basically turn him into a zombie so I you know we go visit him he would just shuffle into the room and we try to talk to him and um, he wouldn't he'd maybe mumble a few words because he was just totally incoherent. And then he would, then they would, you know, shuffle him out of the room. And then eventually the hospital would say, okay, he's fine. We're going to let him back out into the world. And he just came back out and just continued with his behavior, which was doing all his drugs and then just being crazy, you know. And by the way, you know, one of the psychiatrists said, well, you know, he's definitely schizophrenic, but he's been doing lots of drugs. I mean, he loves sniffing paints and, and all sorts of sniffing well, gasoline. A lot, of, a lot of that is connected. You know, you see a high use of su substance abuse problems among schizophrenics because, you know, you're hearing voices, you're seeing things, you're a paranoid schizophrenic, and to dull a lot of those uh, senses and phenomenon, you turn, to, you turn to booze or you turn to drugs. And it's not surprising that he he became schizophrenic because normally that's not diagnosed until really it's not supposed to be diagnosed to at least 18 to 20 years of age. But one of the causes of it is early childhood trauma and growing up uh, with your rageaholic mom and, you know, who knows what other dysfunctions going on 
in his life. It's, it's not surprising that in that milieu of you guys growing up that you would turn into an alcoholic and he became a drug addict and, and a schizophrenic. Yeah. So, you know, so, okay. So by that time, so here I got two things that I would say that were really affecting me. The fact that I had a, a very abusive mom and then this brother that who I loved because he was of the three brothers I had, he, I was the closest to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, here he suddenly went crazy, you know, and he, you know, we didn't have any sort of normal relationship ever again once he really went off the deep end. So where's um, where is he now? And he, he committed suicide. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, and he committed suicide in the state in the state hospital um, where I live. Um, you know, you would think the state hospital would have you know safeguards against something like that, but he's managed to do it yeah there's a very high rate of suicide among schizophrenics and yeah it's it's for it's, it's very unfortunate how old were you when that happened um i was like in my i was probably around 20 okay. and he was he was uh probably 27 i would say um and you think that exacerbated your drinking because i know at that point you were already drinking but you weren't doing the benders yet but certainly a a life trauma like that probably made you drink more yeah maybe and because you know it was right around that you know i was around 2021 that's right around the time by the way where i could start you know buying alcohol legally so yeah so that's when i really started you know drinking nonstop every day um so that's you know possible so, so that's, you know, another contributing factor perhaps to, to my drinking, but right around that same period, you know, so let's, so, so if we back up when I was 10, here's my brother trying to go crazy. And then me personally, you know, I'm hitting puberty, right. Mm-hmm. And becoming sexually aware. And I, I start realizing pretty early on that, um, well, gee, you know, I'm becoming very sexually <laughs> aware of myself, but I'm not not into girls. I start realizing I'm into guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we're, you know, we're going back to, uh, this would be the early 80s. And, you know, homosexuality wasn't talked about much back then. Um, you know, this was pre Rock Hudson, right? Right. Um, so, so I, I, I seriously thought there was something wrong with me, you know, I mean, I thought, and maybe that maybe there still is, I mean, you know, say, you know, that's just your opinion of homosexuality, but back then in particular, especially having nobody to go to, to talk about being gay um that probably is the most you know i think crucial um you know if we're going to go back and say well what is it that you think made you drink okay well i had a raging mom i had a schizophrenic brother and then hey uh i might be gay (laughs) and by the way back then you know i didn't even necessarily know what to call it. I was just like, what the hell's wrong with me? Why am I not into girls? You know, and um and maybe that's when I particularly withdrew and became really shy because, you know, 
um, you know, you go to high school and, and uh, you know, you're hanging around with guys and they're all like, hey, check out that chick. And, or, you know, you go to PE and, yeah. and all the guys are just uh, very uh, unself-conscious about their bodies and stuff and don't seem to care about anybody else's body. And when I would go to PE, I'd be like, oh, man, you know, why am I wanting to check out these guys? And uh, so that, so one reason I tried to avoid going to PE and uh, I was very good at somehow managing not going to PE for my entire high school period was for that reason. Um, so. I have a brother who's, who's, who's gay. He, uh, he, uh, he's older than me. He's so he's 56 and he lives over in Vermont. He moved there about 25, 25 years ago. And, um, he's never been able to hold down a job. He has, he says he suffers from like social anxiety, which has stopped him from holding down a job. So my family, my father's passed away about 10 years ago, but my mother uh, keeps sending him, um, like an allowance every month. Uh, my father, when he was still alive, bought him a house up in Vermont and paid it off because he was worried that my brother after my parents would die would would be destitute and not have a place so they bought him a paid off home over there and my mom essentially supports him uh with with money monthly uh and he uh it's, it's uh yeah you know like like you said like it, it, among the siblings um they handle dysfunction differently and he came out in 84 and back then, my, my dad took him to reversion therapy because, like you mentioned, that's what we did back in the 80s. Yeah. Homosexuality was not as much in the zeitgeist as it is now, and it certainly wasn't as accepted as it is now. And uh, he went to reversion therapy, and, and it, you know, clearly didn't work. And I think that caused some resentment between my father and my brother, even though they, they reconciled later on. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, he, he lives up there alone. And he's never had a successful relationship. He would admit himself he's never been in love. And um, yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know if you can uh, maybe relate to some of that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, except for one thing, you mentioned that he came out relatively early, it sounds like. He was 16. 80. He was 20. He was 20. Okay, well, see, I didn't come out to anybody until... Um, well, okay, the first person was um, this lady I know, and that was about uh, maybe 10 years ago. Uh -huh. um, but that she was the only person I ever came out to, and until just recently, um, which was about two years ago, I finally was able to come out to some other people. So I didn't come out until, you know, my, like my 40s, you know. Does your so, mother know? Uh, you know, I, I told her... Um, before she got dementia, because now she did, she has dementia now. But I, I came out to her about oh, five years ago, and uh, she just her attitude was like, "No, no, you're not. You're you're absolutely not gay. You're you're just joking." Um, yeah. And she's then denial. And den well, denial. But then I said, "No, no, mom. I I am. I know that I am. This is no joke or anything." And and then she uh, kind of cried and said, well, you know, you shouldn't be and don't be because it's, it's, a, it's a hard life. You don't want to be gay. 
I said, well, I don't know what to tell you. I just, I just am. There's really, uh, it's not like some switch I can just turn off and say, hey, I'm not gay anymore. Um, so it was like the most awkward conversation. What about your father? Um, I would never come out to him. And, and interestingly enough, I've never come out to a guy. I've only come out to women. <laughs> so what stops you from coming out to your dad and your brothers? Um, well, okay, well, by that, you know, well, two of them died when I was pretty early. So I had one brother who died of a parachuting accident. Um, wow. And then the, the one brother who committed suicide. The third brother, he was always aloof from the family from a very early age. I mean, he just, he, maybe he just thought my family was crazy and he just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And yeah. he never was really that involved with the family dynamics. So I, I don't really have much of a relationship with him. Yeah. I mean, when I do see him, we're, we're amicable, but um, I, I just don't feel like I even know the guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I, I just, and then my two sisters, one of them I just don't get along with anymore at all. And my other one, I don't know. She's really sweet and I love her, but I just, I don't know. I, I just don't feel like telling her. I, I, I don't know. You know. Do you, do you think that that would lead to some sort of healing? if you just would come totally clean? Because I imagine living in the closet, and I know you've told some people, but imagine not being able to tell your family or in living in the closet in general is, is kind of a burden on you. And it might fuel partly some of that drinking. You know, I mean, maybe if I had done it um, 20 years ago, you know, uh, now at this point, I don't think it matters because, you know, the only people in my life are, are now is my mom and uh, two sisters because everybody else in the family's passed away. Um, no, so your, your dad has passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, my mom has dementia now. She doesn't even really know what's going on. Yeah. Um, the one sister who I don't get along with, nobody in the family. Oh, I still have my, my one brother, actually. That's not true. I, I forget. See, he's so, I, I don't even really have a relationship with him. Yeah. But you know, nobody else in the family gets along with this one sister because she's kind of a raging, crazy person herself. Mm. And uh, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I have no relationship with her and I really don't want one. And then... Um, it's interesting to watch the dynamic of all your siblings because, I mean, they grew up with this dysfunction of your mom and, and maybe other dysfunction. It's interesting, you know, like one stepped away, didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, you know, one became a schizophrenic. Uh, the other one kind of turned into like a mini version of your mom. And, you know, it's interesting how that plays out. Like in my family, my middle brother is in complete denial that my father was an alcoholic because he worships my my dad. And... Um, he when my mom and i bring it up you know to him he just gets apoplectic and just rages over the idea and i said look it doesn't take away from my fa our father's accomplishments but he was a human and he was flawed and we have so much proof that he was an alcoholic but he just doesn't want to hear it at all yeah i mean um i, I mean i sometimes meet families that seem normal and i i, I just wonder maybe all families if you just you know, really got behind the curtain to see what they're really like. You know, uh, I think there's maybe every family's dysfunctional. I don't know. I mean, it's, are, do you really think there's normal families out there? I, I think, I mean, 
anecdotally, I would say that there are some. I, I can say like, uh, yeah, like my ex-fiance, she was raised in a small, you know, Utah town, big family, a lot of siblings and uh, no sexual abuse, no physical abuse, went to church and she's very well adjusted. So I, I think, and she would have told me, I was with her for quite some time, if there were a lot of skeletons in the closet. And um, I think there are people who, leave childhood with some trauma, but uh, there's certainly people that have left childhood with a lot of trauma. And, and this kind of goes back full circle to where we're at now. You, know, you do certainly have early childhood trauma and I think it would benefit you to go talk to a counselor, talk to a therapist uh, about it because no doubt some of this is fueling your drinking. Yeah, and um, you know, having had this interview with you, um, you know, maybe hopefully this has been a very beneficial experience, this, this talking with you, Gregory, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll be able to take that next step to recovery. So a couple other things before we finish up here. So how do you think your, your alcoholism has affected your relationships? Has it, has it stopped you from having deep, and I mean like romantic relationships, has it stopped you from having deep romantic relationships because you feel like people uh, see, oh, you're, you're an alcoholic and they're out because they don't want to deal with that red flag and that, that kind of nightmare of, of living with an alcoholic? Or do you think uh, it has more to do with your homosexuality that, that you haven't had long relationships? I mean, how would you describe your relationships in the last 25 years? Uh, well, I've never really had any relationships with, say, anyone. I mean, as far as like romantically, you know, or sexually even, because um i've been in complete you know for a long time i was kind of in denial about my homosexuality i just kind of thought well you know maybe it will go away eventually and you know alcohol was just kind of a means of escape you know um from that as far as you know help while well, helping me to like just kind of forget about hey you're not gay and so let's just go drink that next bottle of vodka or or back in the day actually it was jack daniels but anyways um so up until recently just it's only been the last couple of years where i uh maybe have had what you could call maybe a possible relationship and uh i think the one this one guy who i could have possibly had a relation with with i think i, I get the feeling um because we were getting along great initially but i think uh, he started distance, distancing himself from me, and I think it's because he kind of uh, was realizing that I had a drinking problem, and he just didn't want that in his life. Yeah, yeah. So can you, can you so blame him for doing that? What was that? Can you blame him for doing that? No, no, not at all, not at all. Um, so, so all I can say is the alcohol helped me all these years, kind of maybe try to pretend that I wasn't gay. So I didn't, I have never really had any sort of relationship during that time, just because I, I was trying not, I, I consciously just chose not to. So if I just uh, think about it and just tell you how I feel, I think like, well, maybe if I had never drank, maybe I, I would have had relationships. You know what I mean? <laughs> would, would you say that you would have had, so you, you didn't have female relationships in high school in your 20s, 30s? Um, yeah, not in high school. 
definitely not. Um, when I was in my 20s, I had a relationship with this uh, lady, but she, it was kind of a strange relationship because she was already engaged and, and me and her uh, ended up becoming really good friends. And um, even though I was gay, I, I did have kind of strong um, romantic feelings for her. Uh, but we, I, it, it never went any further than us, us just having very deep conversations, you know. Okay. And then in my 40s, uh, the next, I had one other uh, deep relationship with a lady, um, and we ended up dating. Um, she asked me out, and I was just thinking, well, Will, you know, here's your big chance to like try to get over your homosexuality uh, to start dating this lady and maybe you can uh, beat this because um, even then I, I, I you know I mean I think even to today I still think it's a sickness but you know I don't know but anyway so we started dating and um, she actually ended up moving in with me and um, one night uh, while we were watching the Olympics and we were watching men's diving and men's gymnastics that night. They were switching back and forth. I was getting really excited by watching these guys, and I ended up coming after her that night. And um, and so from that moment, we've just been really close, close friends. You know, she's probably my closest friend. Um, and does you she know, do? But, does she drink, or does she do any of uh, any vices, drugs, or anything like that? No, no, she's a very, uh, you know, um, well, I mean, she has her own issues, but she's a, you know, she doesn't do any. She she doesn't have any sort of vices or anything that you know yeah. doesn't drink or do drugs. That's good. Did, so, what about? So, have you ever had a, a relationship with a man, or have you had sex with a man? Um. Okay, you know, well, you know, I, I, you know, I kind of forget that, like, back in my twenties, I, I would, I, I had a roommate who, uh, you know, he was a cool dude. You know, he was a he was a stoner and loved to get high, and uh, he his, he would invite friends over and, and they would party, and I would usually excuse myself, and I, I again I would you know on a fifth of vodka I would take off and go driving late at night, and I would stay out. To the early morning hours and i would one morning i, I discovered there was this area in the, in the town i live in where there was it was a local kind of a gay cruising area where guys would drive around in their cars and and just kind of slowly drive by each other and kind of check each other out and and uh usually Nobody, I, I really don't think usually most guys did, ended up doing anything most nights. Um, you know, but occasionally, maybe, you know, guys would hook up. And so I was one of those guys, you know. I, I did have a few sexual encounters that were all just uh, very bizarre. Um, um, I mean, that could be like a, a whole other story. I don't want to get go into that. But... Never, I mean, I never had like a, a, a relationship, like a monogamous relationship. relationship. And even those those sexual encounters, none of them were like a real, real sexual encounter where where uh, I had actual sex with any of the guys. 
um, uh, except for one. I'll, I'll just tell you this one, which is kind of an amusing story. Um, I went to that cruising spot late one night and a truck drove by and the guy looked over at me and kind of, you know, uh, kind of did the thing with his head where he's all like, hey, come on, follow me. So I ended up following this guy back to his place. We get up to his apartment and he opens the door and we get into the light of his living room and I look at this guy and I was like, oh my God, this is my assistant principal from high school. <laughs> wow. Which everybody, by the way, when I was in high school, thought he was gay. You know, he was that teacher or the principal or whoever that everybody would kind of make fun of behind their back. Yeah. You know, he was gay. And here he was. <laughs> I was there. So here I am, like 24 now. And here's my assistant principal. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to have sex with my assistant principal? Anyways, uh, I'm a kind of a romantic guy. And so we sat down on his couch and I was just kind of like wanting to talk or whatnot, even though I knew this was a bizarre situation. Uh, I still wanted to like, you know, you know, have a good evening with him. Uh, but no, not him. He was all like, what are you doing? Get in the bedroom. I was all like, what? He's all, yeah, well, I mean, what the hell did you come over here for? We're, we're going to have sex. And I was all like, we are? <laughs> and he got, he may have even kind of like grabbed me by the arm and, and kind of took me to the bedroom. And uh, I said, well, what are, what are you doing? doing? Don't you want to like talk first? He's all like, hell no. I, I want to have sex, you know? It's all about banking. Yeah. Yeah, all, you yeah. know? And he like, you know, I, I don't want to use the word rape. I mean, because I just think, in this, you know, for, I mean, I suppose it was a possible rape situation because he was forcibly taking off my clothes and I was telling him, dude, I don't want to do this. And, uh, you know, I, I think he forcibly had all my clothes off and because uh, I, I don't think I helped at all. Um, and he kind of pushed me back into the bed and I was like, dude, I don't know what the hell you're thinking, but I do not want to do this. And he was just kind of manhandling me and he just grabbed my ankles threw him over my head and I was just like dude uh you know and I finally like just kind of like said you know I pushed him off I said dude there's no way this is going to happen and then you know he was all just kind of like what the fuck is your problem dude why I don't even know why the hell you came over here get the hell out of here you know so you know like uh you know I felt like a complete fool and you know well, I think I think you're maybe kind of a novice to that world. And, uh, you know, I, I know anecdotally and I've seen studies that hyper promiscuity among the gay community is rampant. It's something like I saw some statistic and, and I don't want to quote it as if it's true because I, I, I don't want to get the numbers wrong. But it's something like 50 percent of gay men have had over 500 sexual partners in their lifetime. And yeah, and I, I believe it. You know. yeah, and a lot of it's just that hookup culture, you know, going to these these bars and clubs and banging, you know, three, four guys in one night. And it's just, but it, it's something, it, the number is something like that. But either way, let's, let's, let's finish up here. So where do you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Um, well, you know, I mean, I really want to uh, get a job. Um, so hopefully if I'm around in 10, years knock on wood I mean hopefully I'll be sober um, I'll be eating better because you know I, I eat like a lot of crap mm. and 
as far as a relationship, I don't really care at this point. Yeah, you know, I, friends are more important to me right now than, than being in a relationship. But I, I see myself sober, hopefully having a job, and uh, just being, you know, more happy, I suppose. And who do you blame for your alcoholism? Well, at the end of the day, myself. And, and you know, who else? You know, I can't blame anybody. Nobody forced a bottle in my hand and forced me to drink it or you know nobody's been doing that every day of my life you know what I mean so it's in the day it's just myself well it's interesting because it, when you when you ask that question to certain people they'll they'll run out run down the litany of all the people that have hurt them abused them sexually abused them physically abused them and all these things and so I think that's a, a good step in the right direction because you're not having necessarily the victim mentality of blaming everybody uh for for you putting uh, you know the alcohol in, in your in your in your mouth like i talk about over in confessions like it's like i i could i could blame a bunch of people for stuff but ultimately that doesn't lead to healing and it doesn't lead to our kind of survivor or a thriver mode ultimately a lot of people have a lot of garbage from their childhood and they have to work through it and so i have to be accountable for all the, the, the garbage I put in my, my body the last 20, 25 years. And when I get cancer, cause like one in two men are diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime, not just, you know, people who abuse their body, but in general, it's one in three women and one in two men. When I get it, I'm, I, I can't be mad at anybody but myself. So I think, I think it's good that, that you, you, you take accountability for your drinking. I would say that you mentioned that alcoholism is, alcoholism is a disease. And if we use that kind of paradigm that it's a disease similar to your cancer, what do we do when we have a disease? We, we, we try to treat it, right? We try to fix it. So if you identify as alcoholism as a disease, then the next step is, is of course, to get treatment for it. But there are people who will say, uh, you know, my, my sex addiction, my eating addiction, my gamma addiction is a disease and they use it as a crutch to never do anything about it because it's like, oh, well, it's a disease. I can't do anything about it. And so I think it's, I think it's good on one level where you acknowledge that you think it's a disease. So if you think it's a disease, then the next step is treatment. So, you know, maybe going to rehab, maybe at least going to therapy and talking about some of that childhood trauma and fixing that, 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 that early childhood stuff. Cause I think once you address a lot of that stuff, uh, maybe your desire to drink will abate at least a little. And I, of course I would recommend that you, you stop hanging out with friends who drink. I think anybody, who cares about you would probably tell you that as well. Yeah, I agree. And then, like I said earlier, hopefully uh, just having this interview with you and, and discussing all these things that I, you know, rarely talk about with other people will, you know, help me take that next step of going to rehab or whatever. So. All right, cool. Is there anything else that you want to tell the, the listeners? And um, no, other than, you know, just if, if you do have children, you know, I don't want to sound like some like TV ad, but if you have children, I would just tell them, you know, be just really aware of what they're doing. Because, you know, the other thing about alcoholism that studies show is that, you know, if, if you have your first drink before the age of 16, I think, is, is that you're more expon exponentially more likely to become an alcoholic. So, you know, I... I mean, definitely you don't want to encourage your teenagers to be drinking or doing drugs because that's going to, you know, that's going to be more likely to lead them down a path of addiction. So. Mm. 
And, uh, yeah, I think it's good to be for all parents to be vigilant of their tweens and teenagers because I think a lot of them are in denial and be like, oh, my kid would never, you know, do drugs or my kid would never be drinking. And, you know, kids are so good nowadays at hiding stuff. And Or, or I, I know parents who, like, I mean, know their kids are, you know, drinking or smoking weed or whatever, and, and it doesn't bother them because it's just like, no, you know, that's no big thing because we all have a drink occasionally or we all smoke pot or whatever but you know um. well, that's the thing is that some people like i don't i i don't touch alcohol going back to my brother so my brother who defends my father drinks and he's essentially a functioning alcoholic like every time i go visit him he's always drinking three four five six drinks a night but he's very functional and when i was growing up seeing the way my dad was and my brother was i did the opposite i didn't drink at all so i've never been drunk in my life because i have addictive issues with food when I was growing up. And I also saw what the damage did of alcoholism. So I was like, I don't, I don't want to touch this stuff. And I think once you reach a certain age, maybe 25 or so, that whole peer pressure period of your life, like college, like do it, do it, fit in, kind of goes away. And so at that point, you're like, well, why do I want to drink? You know, why do I want to binge drink, let's say, and get drunk? Because all you're doing is running away from issues and you're just worsening issues, right? So like with alcohol, I, I drink it rarely. I never drink it alone. I only drink a glass of wine if I'm with somebody in only one glass because I, I know myself and I, I don't want to open that door. Now, maybe I'm being overly circumspect by, by doing that. Same thing for like pot or, or other things. I don't touch it. Uh, but I just think it's like, look, I have this one crutch that I've dealt with since childhood. I just don't want to open a Pandora's box and have to deal with, with another thing. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's the only thing I would say is as, as, as parents, you know, try to encourage your kids to be open about what they're doing, who they are, you know, try to be accepting of, of if they're gay, you know, maybe they don't agree with it, but you know, try to deal with it in a positive way, and um, and maybe that'll help prevent people going down the path of drug or alcohol abuse, you know. So, well said, well said. All right, well, I appreciate your candor, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. I think it's going to help men who have similar issues or at least elucidate uh, the problem of, of alcoholism with a lot of guys who maybe can't relate to it. So I, I appreciate it greatly you coming on today. All right. Thanks, Gregory. All right. Take care. God bless. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. All right. That was our interview with Will. Uh, again, I want to appreciate him and thank him for coming on and being so forthright and candid about his experiences with early childhood trauma and with, of course, his alcoholism. And guys, uh, as a reminder, if any of you suffer from any sort of addiction or anything like that, you're you're more than welcome to to contact me and, and come on the podcast if you if you want to talk about your particular experience with alcoholism or or drug addiction, sex addiction, gambling, you know, fantasy football. We have an episode here at the Awakened Men and all these types of addictions. If you just scroll down and, and check out all 275 episodes, you'll see that we have a, a lot of addiction stuff. And if you guys are not familiar with my backstory, I would recommend that you go over to Confessions of an Obese Child, the podcast, and check out the episodes there. I have about 70 of them, and that was actually the original podcast that I started before uh, this one, and then the uh, I, I took over for my ex-fiance, the Essential Oils and Herbal Apothecary episode, or podcast channel. 
so that's uh, this Confessions was the original one, and um, so I would recommend you go check that out if you want more of my backstory. But I do thank Will for coming on, and hopefully this podcast episode was was useful or helpful to you. And if it was, reach out and let me know over on Facebook. Until next time, take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Last thing, of course, if you find what we do here helpful at all, please consider donating to our PayPal account. You'll see the link in the episode notes of this episode and all episodes that we have here. Donate $5, $10 one time, monthly, weekly, whatever you like. Another way to help us out is buy my two books, Confessions of an Obese Child or Revelations of a Weight Loss Warrior. You can find both of them on Amazon, Kindle, or Paperback. Also, go to the website Naturopathic Earth. We have something like 600 articles and 250 recipes on clean eating, like dairy-free, gluten-free. But if you go to those recipes, aside from checking them out, uh, you'll notice that there's links to Amazon to buy those ingredients on Amazon. If you click on that to get to Amazon, anything that you buy on Amazon that has nothing to do with those ingredients, just say you want to buy jewelry or a dress, they get 2% commission at no expense to you. And uh, the last thing is please consider subscribing and posting an honest review for The Awakened Man as, as well as Confessions of an Obese Child and The Essential Oils and Herbal Apothecary. We would appreciate an honest review. Until next time, take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Awakened Man Podcast. Find us on Facebook at The Awakened Man Podcast page. Subscribe and post an honest review on Apple Podcasts and consider donating to our crowdfunding account. Remember, freedom is better than need Until next time. Music attributed to Lionel Schmitz.